from University of Utah Health and The Scope presents This is Clinical. I'm Mitch Sears, producer for The Scope Radio, and you're listening to episode two of Unit on the Brink, a multi part podcast series that offers a snapshot of one state, one hospital, one medical ICU, and the frontline workers tasked with treating the most severe COVID 19 patients. This is a multi-part story told in order. And if you haven't listened to episode one yet, we highly recommend that you start there in your podcast app. Don't worry, we'll be here when you get back. For everyone else, this is part two of Unit on the Brink. And at the uh, table, familiar face to uh, our viewers, Dr. Anthony Fauci, who is director of the National Institutes of Allergy and Infectious Diseases. Give us a sense of what the government here in this country, and the WHO, let's say, are, are expecting uh, this coming fall. Well, we know that the virus is here and it, and it spreads easily. We, we first noticed it in the spring in April in, here in the United States and the Southwest and Texas and in California and in Mexico. And then within a period of a few months, it went worldwide. So we know it's here and we know it's in, in a pandemic level. That was Dr. Anthony Fauci the director of the National Institute of Allergies and Infectious Diseases. You may have seen him on the news in 2020, either at a White House press briefing or a congressional hearing. He's been a sort of de facto figure of scientific and medical thought during the U.S. coronavirus outbreak. But that clip you just heard, with the description of an easily spreading virus and how quickly it became a pandemic, that's not from 2020. It's from 2009. But first, the latest on the swine flu epidemic, which the CDC said today has spread widely and cannot be contained. Influenza A, virus subtype H1N1, or casually called the swine flu, was a virus that spread across the globe beginning in spring of 2009. Well, technically this was the second time the virus became a worldwide pandemic. H1N1 first entered the history books back in 1918, where it infected over 500 million people and killed between 17 and 50 million worldwide in just two years. Sound familiar? History buffs probably know it by a different name, the Spanish flu. The most recent outbreak of H1N1 began in April of 2009, spreading rapidly across Mexico and the United States. In just one month's time, there were 2,000 recorded cases in parts of the southwestern United States and Mexico. By June, H1N1 had spread to 62 different countries, with over 17,000 cases worldwide. For most people that became infected, the effects of the virus were similar to a bad flu. For others, it could mean death. Unexpectedly, the virus seemed to impact younger people more than anticipated. And treatment for severe cases included the use of long-term intubation on a ventilator. As the calendar turned to July, some specialists at the time believed that the virus would sort of peter out over the summer with increased temperatures and new treatments. But they were wrong. What I'd like to do this afternoon is give you an update on some of the recent developments with H1N1 influenza. H1N1 influenza is here. It is spreading in parts of the U.S., particularly in the southeast. And in fact, it never went away. We had H1N influenza throughout the summer in summer camps. And now with colleges and schools coming back into session, we're seeing more cases. When schools reopened in the fall, a second wave of H1N1 infections hit the U.S. CDC estimates that by November, 22 million Americans were infected with H1N1. And that was after a vaccine had started to be distributed. By the time the United States had got the virus under control in April of 2010, the final numbers were staggering. 
60.8 million Americans had been sick. 274,000 were hospitalized and 12,469 Americans died. If the similarities between the pandemic in 2009 and the current COVID-19 pandemic in 2020 make you uncomfortable, you're not alone. Some experts like Dr. Fauci suggest that the U.S. may have yet to finish its first wave of the novel coronavirus, and the U.S. death toll has already reached 173,000 as of recording. For many of the healthcare workers in our story, COVID-19 was not the first pandemic virus they went to war with in the medical intensive care unit. These nurses and doctors already had battle scars from the fight against H1N1 less than a decade ago. And frankly, some are still dealing with their trauma while they don their Pappers and N95s once more to battle a new and deadlier foe. Presented by Clinical and written and reported by Stephen Dark, this is episode two, Echoes of the Past. Lynn Keenan, MD, wanted only to practice medicine. I always wanted to be a physician. <laughs> oh, there was nothing else all my life. Nothing else. nothing else. Born and raised in Philadelphia, after graduating high school, she joined the U.S. Army, since it would put her through medical school. For the last three years, she's been pulmonary critical care attending physician at the Medical Intensive Care Unit at University of Utah Hospital. And the roots of her passion for medicine? It's certainly in her family. Her grandfather was a physician, but the connection goes further back than that. My great-great-grandmother was the fifth woman physician in the country. Marie Devol, MD, went into medicine after her husband, the captain of a whaler, whose brutal treatment of his own crew led to a mutiny and his murder, left her with four children to support. Back then, however, a woman physician wasn't well regarded by many. Not that Devol let that stand in her way. She actually joined the public health service because no one would go to a woman physician in the late 1800s. She graduated Harvard Medical School in 1878 and she went out to Dakota Territory and worked for the Indian Health Service and then came back to Augusta, Maine and founded a hospital. Back in Devol's day, a physician would walk with a staff, a holdover from the days of the bubonic plague when such staffs identified medical practitioners to the public. The staff bears both an hourglass and wings, a reminder to all who saw it the time is fleeting. Keenan has the staff now, but that's not the only gift her ancestor handed down through the generations. He's a role model of independence and doing what you needed to do in the setting of adversity. Keenan left the military in 1997, and after a spell in private practice, eventually ended up at University of Washington in Seattle to both teach and work in the ICU. And what drew her to the ICU? The saves. Uh, the rewards are the saves. Seeing people come in uh, gravely ill with multiple organ failure and working very hard and diligently with them and bringing them back to a meaningful quality of life and seeing them in the office later on back into their normal life. And I have one gentleman I took care of who joined the H1N1 in Seattle who was in the ICU for three weeks and intubated for three weeks. And just seeing him going to his wedding and 
seeing him go back to a normal life. H1N1. Worldwide, the CDC estimated that in the 12 months to April 2010, 12,469 Americans died from complications relating to the virus. Worldwide deaths totaled 575,400 in those same 12 months, the vast majority under 65. Keenan was in Seattle when H1N1 hit. So it came on the radar about May 2009, and then there was a lull in the summer, and then resurgence in the fall again. And the striking part about it was the two populations that it really um, affected most, the young population in their 20s, and young and obese in particular, and then older patients over 65 immunocompromised. So just that bimodal type of disease. And they were profoundly ill with uh, acute respiratory distress syndrome. And they had tons of secretions. ICU beds were filled with patients struggling to breathe, some sedated into temporary comas and turned onto their stomachs a practice known as proning, so their lungs could recuperate from the constant pounding they were receiving from the ventilators. I mean, our ICU was filled with people who were proned for weeks with uh, refractory hypoxemia. Because you breathe better, and it's better for your lung health to recruit your lungs and less shear forces on your lungs to be prone than supine. And, and were you losing many patients, or were most recovering? Actually, we, only, we didn't lose any, which was amazing. At University Hospital in Salt Lake City, Alicia Barker was just two years into being a registered nurse when she encountered swine flu in the MICU. The arrival of the pandemic threw her and MICU staff into a traumatic world where the young died so quickly they didn't have time to send the body to the morgue before the next patient was coding. I remember it being, it was just like one shift. We started to get you know, really sick patients in. It was like someone just flipped a switch and all of a sudden we had three patients coding, you know, in one shift. To have, you know, at least three patients code, you know, and die during your shift became kind of normal, Um, which it was just, it was very exhausting, uh, you know, to care, to have so many sick patients at one time. Um, I just remember feeling very, I don't very tired, very like um, taxed, I guess. Just think, you know, just being like, what is going on? And it was more, it was, it was a lot of men who in their age ranges of tw- like 20 to 50. Those were the, the patients I remember, you know, being extremely sick and who would die um, were these, you know, younger men um, who would just come in like balls of fire, you know, would just go out in, you know, a blaze of glory, basically. It was, it was really hard. A blaze of glory, like they were just very sick and, and we were, yeah, respiratory failure, you know, very, you know, in septic shock and, you know, and you're working frantically to try and, and save them. During H1M1, Barker started to feel that her face was almost permanently welded to an N95 mask, which protects the wearer from airborne droplets. She had to wear the mask so often during crisis moments with patients, it became synonymous with fighting to keep patients alive or losing the battle. 
I it's I I find it ironic. So you know, we would wear the N95 masks, you know, really tight to your face, coding patients, doing CPR, and you know, working frantically to try and save these patients' lives. And you're in, you know, gowned up in this PPE with N95 masks on, and you're hot and it's exhausting. If you've ever done CPR on a patient where you're pushing on their chest, you know, you do it for two minutes at a time, and then you check their pulse. Well, after about 20 seconds, it feels like you've been doing it for two minutes. And you look up at the clock and you realize it's only been 20 seconds and you've still got to go for quite a bit longer. And so doing that, you know, in this, you know, and it's a young person who normally wouldn't be in your unit. And it's just kind of, it's shocking. The mask became a painfully oppressive reminder of the anguish she went through each time she tried to keep a patient alive only to lose them to the virus. I couldn't wear an N95 mask for a long time. It actually made me claustrophobic. I can't be on like elevators, like crowded elevators. I'd rather, I don't care how many flights of stairs it is, I will take the stairs versus get on a crowded elevator. Along with claustrophobia, the mask also induced panic. Wearing the mask and coating so many patients with that N90, you know, with wearing an N95 mask, it gave me a panic when I would put it on. Um, it made me panic. Being physically hot, trying to save someone's life, working frantically, you know, all while you've got this mask on your face and, you know, yeah. By the time the second wave of H1N1 hit in the fall, Barker had even more concerns. I was pregnant with my first child and I remember being very wary and, you know, frightened for, in a sense, to take care of these patients just because of the risk that I was, you know, putting myself and my unborn child in. Um, But no one that I know of got sick, no staff members, which is a testament to, you know, when you have the proper PPE and you put it on and take it off properly. The horrors of the 2009 pandemic remained largely behind closed hospital doors. COVID-19, however, began making inroads into the American consciousness in January 2020, as global media reported the virus's emergence in Wuhan, China, and its first fatality on January the 11th. Meantime, the World Health Organization holds an emergency meeting today to determine whether to declare a public health emergency regarding the coronavirus. Chinese officials say the death toll has risen to 170, 7,900 cases worldwide, and the number of cases in China surpasses the total cases during the SARS epidemic of 03. By January the 21st, the United States had had its first recorded case in Washington state, and two days later, China took the unprecedented step of quarantining Wuhan, a city of 11 million people. By mid-February, the disease had a name, COVID-19, and had been confirmed as a global pandemic by the World Health Organization. Deaths were also being confirmed in France, Italy, Iran, and South Korea. And an update now on the coronavirus outbreak in Italy. The government's racing to contain the biggest outbreak of the virus in Europe, imposing restrictions on about 100,000 people and shutting down public gatherings. In Utah, some began to panic. People hoarded toilet paper, masks, food. Grocery stores couldn't keep their shelves stocked as panic buyers stripped them of everything. 
streets. Nearly 1,200 people poured into the South Jordan Costco this morning, up about 450% over a regular Thursday. I definitely want to stock up, make sure I have everything I can, because I don't know what what's to come. Mickey nurse Kat Co and her partner Jeremy had decided to take a break from social media and the news cycle, and so were unaware of the pandemonium around them. She had heard a few stories about the virus's impact in Italy, but it was her neighbours who first alerted them that things weren't quite right in their hometown. Honestly, my neighbours told us that they had gone to Costco and stocked up on food and toilet paper and stuff. And we were both like, what? Because <laughs> we're, I mean, they're good friends of ours and they're sane and, you know, like we are like-minded in a lot of ways. And um, we were just kind of like, oh my God, this is maybe like a bigger deal than we thought. Then her friends began canceling trips abroad. I think actually like the wake up call for me was listening to um, an episode of The Daily where they interviewed an Italian doctor and he talked about what was happening at their hospital it just sounded like a war zone. Like he described it like a, like a war zone. That like put a picture in my head of like what this thing could do if there weren't like any efforts to control it, I guess. And I actually started to get pretty scared after that. Co started at the MICU in October 2017. It was a dream she had aspired to for years. While she had studied magazine photojournalism and English at Georgia University and gone on to become an instructor in rock climbing, backpacking and mountaineering, as well as a mountain guide in Jackson Hole, in her heart she yearned to be a public servant. It was that desire which drew her in her early 30s to nursing. Despite professors at Montana State University College of Nursing advising her post-graduation to do a year on a hospital floor rather than plunge straight into the ICU, at 34, she felt she had no time to waste. Co wanted to get to the ICU as soon as she could. She successfully applied for a nursing position at the university hospital's MICU, only once there to quickly question her haste. Oh my God. Let's just say I was like, why did I think I wanted to do this? It was so hard. Like, I have never felt so dumb as an adult. <laughs> the learning curve was just, it was so much steeper than I ever could have imagined. Her first day, an elderly patient coded, meaning she went into cardiac arrest. Seen someone arrest before, I'd never even seen people doing CPR, and I did CPR on my very first day. Yeah, obviously, I'll never forget that. Like, that's so significant. I think the first time you ever have to do CPR, you're, like, breaking someone's ribs and, like, potentially cracking their sternum. And to, like, pound that hard on another person's chest, is it feels like so, it's like, what you have to do to resuscitate someone, but it also feels so like barbaric. So I think it just, it was like shocking to me to like feel myself doing that to another person, but then also 
I was like really proud that I knew how to do it and that I was in a position like finally after so many years of school and training and like thinking about working in the ICU like I don't know it was like a lot of mixed emotions I went to the bathroom and cried <laughs> drinking from the Mickey fire hose for 18 months is super stressing she says to the point where it started to undermine her engagement with her work and then in January 2019 a friend in Montana invited her to join a climbing expedition to Patagonia Argentina Co went to see her manager at the MICU. I was like, here's the deal. I've been asked to go on an expedition that could be like a once in a lifetime kind of thing. I really want to do this. And basically, like, I'm going to do what I have to do in order to be able to go. And she was so awesome. She was like, we'll make it happen. Tell me the dates. We'll make it happen. And you'll still have your job when you come back. Co and her climbing partners scaled multiple routes in the Andes and in the Fitzroy Massif in southern Patagonia. Um, the weather is heinous. It's insane. Like, I had never seen anything like it guiding in Wyoming or Montana. The wind can literally pick you up off your feet and flip you over. It's crazy. But it was cool, it was like what I needed, was to just like go out in the mountains and get completely worked and like <laughs> remember what I have here that's like really good, you know? She came back to the MICU committed, recharged, and grateful that she had both her vocation and the job to pursue it. If Co had been largely disconnected from news feeds and social media as COVID-19 started to make inroads in the US, the MICU's Lynn Keenan, MD, first heard about the virus taking American lives from former colleagues in Washington. It came under my radar in about January, February, and particularly when the cases popped up in Washington. It did remind me of H1N1, and I keep in touch with all my colleagues from Washington, and they said it was similar but different. You know, H1N1 had a lot of secretions. Patients with COVID tend to have a lot of really dry, unrelentless, hacking cough. Registered nurse Megan Deal, who joined the MICU a year after Co, was also hearing about COVID-19 from friends at her former place of employment. I was a nurse in Seattle before I was here, so I had heard a lot about what was happening there. Um, and it was, oh, you know, they've got a case of it in Seattle. And then, oh, now there's this many cases. And it was just things kept popping up. The diagnosis of COVID-19 cases on U.S. soil had special significance for MICU staff. The MICU is the hospital's co-bio unit, which means that along with dealing with severely ill patients, they also take patients who have been given a co-bio designation, co-bio B for blood-borne and body fluid illnesses such as Ebola, which require staff to wear head-to-toe suits, and CoBio-A, for airborne and droplet diseases such as COVID-19 and measles. Code-A requires wearable air purifiers or N95 masks and shields, along with contact precautions, namely gowns and gloves. As the biohazard unit, the MICU is designed to enclose itself away from the rest of the hospital and the community, explains nurse Megan Deal. Our unit is set up so that we can put a wall down over four or five rooms and then 
kind of separate that, like section it off so that we all of those are negative pressure rooms. In total, there are nine negative pressure rooms, each with a vent to the outside and specialized filters that trap anything infectious. After COVID-19 was categorized as Code A at the beginning of the coronavirus crisis, two nurses were put in charge preparing the unit's response to the virus. Patients were moved to other units. The co-bio area was isolated and staff trained. But as the patient load climbed, so they had to adapt their protocols and staff required further training on how to not only deal with an evolving medical crisis, but also the protocol of donning and doffing of specialized protective equipment. We had to change our scrubs and you had different shoes that you would wear and there were certain certain protective equipment and then there are different zones that you stand in that was like in this zone you have to take this thing off and you know wash your hands like this so it it turned into like it was an interesting start because we hadn't done that but they had been preparing for it so we started doing this code bio thing and we would have two nurses for one patient and another person back there to help read the steps of when you put everything on and take everything off and it was eating up a lot of our staff because you have to have like three nurses for one patient. As the first COVID-19 positive patients came in, so protocol changed. We probably had, I don't know, nine or 10 patients come through that we put in those rooms. And then the CDC changed their recommendations of what kind of precautions to be on. And so we put the wall back up and like put all the other stuff away. And then it was just regular like droplet and airborne precautions. So started out really weird with the code bio stuff, but it felt really, felt really intense. COVID-19 required new protocol for personal protective equipment. Those policies would change each time the Center for Disease Control issued new guidelines. As more COVID patients occupied MICU beds, CatCo found her initial assumptions that the virus was another form of influenza immediately challenged. Suddenly the personal stakes for staff felt much higher. We started to get like our first few, and one of them is fairly young and no past medical history, and that really worried me. So I was like, oh, okay, this is... Because I think leading up to that, I thought, oh, it's like another flu. You know, if we get it, we get it, but we'll just have... We'll just basically have the flu. And then I saw this patient that was incredibly sick. Very, very sick. He very quickly went from um, having like classic upper respiratory infection, you know, signs and symptoms to going into ARDS, so acute respiratory distress syndrome. And seeing a young person with no past medical history go into ARDS from a virus that I previously thought was like the flu was like a game changer for like a lot of us in the ICU and like the way that we thought about coronavirus. Along with the stress of seeing patients inexplicably deteriorate, nurses like Megan Deal also had to deal with seemingly constant changes in protocol when it came to PPE and patient care. There's so many things that change all the time with, you know, what are you supposed to wear and who's going to be in the room and this and that. And so it's been, I think... It's just stressful because so much changes and we want to make sure that we're protected, but we want to be following the rules and doing the appropriate steps and 
it feels like the steps are always changing. The virus has impacted her professional life in so many ways, whether in terms of trying to conserve PPE or handling how she enters her home after each shift. I definitely have changed my my work kind of routine. You know, I where we were changing scrubs, most people still change scrubs when they work with those patients into the hospital scrubs. At the end of the shift, I put my scrubs in a bag and I have shoes that I only wear at work and then I change shoes and change clothes before I go home and then you get home and you put your bagged clothes into the laundry and so it's, it feels like we're doing the right things but there's always kind of in the back of your mind like, well, what if I were to get it? Some didn't want to care for COVID-19 positive patients not out of concern for themselves, but because of responsibilities at home. I know a lot of my coworkers have kids at home and they're worried about bringing it to their kids or they live with family that's immunocompromised and they're like, well, I don't wanna have those patients because I don't wanna take it home to them. And that makes sense. And so I feel like some of us feel like we should have those patients more because we're not in contact with other people that would be hurt more by it. and. We have two nurses, too, that are over 60, probably. I don't know how old they are, actually. <laughs> but we always try to put them on the other side of the unit or not let them take care of those patients because there is a risk. And so you think about it. But I feel like our management team has been really great at getting us prepared and making sure we have what we need. And I fall back on that, I think, of being like, no, we're prepared, we're ready, we'll be fine, we're taking all these steps but you still shower when you get home right away. <laughs> Some people even shower at work and then shower again when they get home. So it's, it's changed a lot of things. Recollections of H1N1 inevitably haunted some of the healthcare workers. And when nurses like Barker drew comparisons between H1N1's patients and the symptoms and fate of the first COVID-19 patients, their sense of apprehension only grew. Oh, God. Uh, similarities are the acuity of the patients. They're, you know, they're very sick and, and time consuming and the risk. I remember feeling, you know, especially when I was pregnant, just feeling, you know, very frightened every time I, you know, every time you put on your PPE and you think about it, you think, okay, you know, I, I I hope, you know, I'm not, I hope I don't get infected with this or, and then you take it, you know, you're taking it off and, you know, you're making sure that you're wiping things down and sanitizing your hands. I think, you know, that attention and that pressure that you feel when you're taking care of these patients, that, um, that is similar. However, COVID is, the patients, you know, the death rate is higher and it's, there's more fear around it. I feel, and, and maybe it's because I'm a more seasoned nurse and I know more. And so during H1N1, I was, you know, two years into my nursing career um, where I knew enough, but I wasn't as well-rounded as a nurse as I am now. Barker found comfort in her wealth of experience as a nurse. She felt like she and her colleagues were akin to a medical version of the Navy SEALs when it came to fighting the virus. It's like, it's a bit of dread, like, oh, here we go. But then also realizing, well, we take care of these types of patients all of the time who need these respiratory, you know, where we're wearing this PPE. We're very used to wearing this PPE anyway. And so I almost feel like we are 
we're kind of like, it sounds cheesy to say, but almost like the special forces of this. We practice this all the time. We're very good at it. We're the experts at it. Coming up next on Unit on the Brink. The staff at the University Hospital MICU are some of the most well-prepared individuals to help save the victims of a global pandemic. But all of their protocols, all of their training, and all of their experience was about to be tested. We do start off with breaking news tonight. Late this evening, Utah becoming the latest state to have a confirmed case of the coronavirus. A Summit County man is believed to be the first person in Utah to have contracted COVID-19 through community spread. As the number of infected individuals rose in Utah, the unit began to see a rise in the severity of the illness in some of their patients. And in turn, the medical staff had to escalate to more extreme measures to fight back against the virus and save their patients' lives. When you're on a ventilator with ARDS, typically what we'll do is, yeah, put people into um, a coma by sedating them as well as often um, will paralyze them, pharmaceutically paralyze them. I always tell patients, particularly before I put a breathing tube down or any time, that we're here to take good care of them. And I always tell them what the plan is for the day so that they know and I tell them how they're doing, if they're doing the same. And I tell them in my world, stability is a great thing. Join us next week for episode three, Isolation Protocol. Clinical is part of the Scope Presents Network and brought to you by University of Utah Health. If you liked what you heard, please be sure to subscribe and share with your friends. You can also help others find us by leaving a review on Stitcher or Apple Podcasts. Those reviews really help out new podcasts, and we really appreciate them. Do you have a story from the front line of COVID-19, a nursing story that you would like to share, or just a message of gratitude to the men and women from our story? We want to hear it. Feel free to call our listener line at 1-601-55-SCOPE. Again, that's 1-601-55-SCOPE or email us directly at hello at thescoperadio.com. And finally, if you want to see the inside of the MICU and the faces of the brave professionals in our story working to save lives, you can visit our podcast companion site at thescoperadio.com clinical. Click on Voices from the Frontline. There, you can find bios and pictures from the frontline healthcare workers, bonus content, and teasers for future episodes. That's thescoperadio.com clinical. Clinical is produced by me, Mitch Sears, and Stephen Dark. Music by Ian Post, Yehez Raz, and Collective Artists. Audio clips from C-SPAN, CNBC, and KUTV. Special thanks to Charlie Ellert and Jessica Cagle for their work on the Portraits and Companion site. And of course, a heartfelt thanks to the men and women who have shared their stories with all of us and fight to this very day to keep each and every one of us safe. <laughs>